At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Has anybody ever told you to try something that will change your world, change your life? Try this food, I have been told. It will change your life. Listen to this music, I have been told. It will change your life. Read this book. It will change your life. Buy this product. It will change your life. Have you ever heard that? Has it? It hasn't, has it? Nothing we read or buy or experience or taste or listen to has rarely, if ever, changed our life. And yet it hasn't stopped the marketing, folks, if you're marketing, please forgive me, but it, but it hasn't stopped the marketing campaigns and the advertisements from trying to get you to buy this or buy that because it has the promise of changing your life. If only that were true, but somehow, whether it's a advertising campaign or a political campaign, because everyone's got a promise to, make, to, to throw at us, nothing seems to fill the void in our heart. Nothing transforms our lives. Nothing seems to change our world. And so we live with a healthy dose of skepticism. Whenever we hear that phrase, this will change your life. We're skeptical because we've tried it and we've been burned before. We've been there. We've done that. We don't want to try that again. And so we live with that skepticism that whatever's being promised is probably not going to be true. Now, we're going to buy our children the next great toy. Some of you need to do that. Um, And it's going to change the kid's life for about five minutes. And the box probably becomes more important. But regardless, but regardless, we live with that dose of skepticism in our life. Will this thing really change our life? You know, God's word makes promises to us. And sometimes because of the skepticism that we have in our lives, we wonder, because God has made that promise, will God keep his word? Will God do the things that he said? Will God's word come true in our lives? And will God's word change our life like it promises? I'm here to tell you this morning, God's word will. God's word will transform our lives and it will transform our world. But in order to help prove that point, we're just going to start a series, a sermon series this morning called Fulfilled. And we're going to journey towards Christmas in the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, it's interesting, talks about the birth of Jesus, and he does so by organizing his story around five prophecies that he pulls from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at all of them over the next several weeks. And this, this morning, we're in chapter 1, and we're going to look at these promise, promises that God made 700 plus years ago that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that God, the promise keeper, The only one who can keep his word, the only one who truly can transform our lives and our world, is in the business of not only promising something, but fulfilling it. Amen? And so we're going to look at these promises that have been made, that have been fulfilled in Jesus 
Christ. By the way, the tagline of the message is, or of the series is fulfilled. His promise kept, our longing met. Because only God can fill the longing in our heart. And so as we start this specific message in this series, I want to start with a visual illustration. On the screen in front of you, there's a sentence. God blank us. What would you fill into that blank? Now, before you answer, just step back and take a look at what that sentence is asking us. You see, that statement is relating two distinct groups of people together in a relationship. On one side, you have God, God the infinite, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of the universe who created everyone and everything. God is on one side of the sentence. On the other side is us. Finite, limited, broken, sinful humanity. The sentence is asking us to relate these two people, God and us. And so what would you put into that blank? Because whatever you put into that blank says a lot about our relationship between these two and really how you think about the relationship between these two. So what are the words you'd put there? Oh, I heard a lot of them. That's good. This is good. What, what, over here. With. Okay, hold on to that. Hold on to that. You're jumping my message. Hold on to that. Fulfills us. Great. God calls us. Great. God blesses us. Great. Saves. What was the other one? Loves. Wonderful. We've got lots of words that we can fill into that gap, can't we? In fact, A.W. Tozer said it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The first thing that comes to your mind about God says a lot about us. Just think of the words we've used. Those words truly impact how we see not only us, but how we relate to an infinite almighty God. And somebody jumped the gun already. We're going to get to that. But thank you, because you've prepped the message for me. We're in Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to look at the first prophecy that Matthew pulls from the book of Isaiah. It's in verses 22 and 23. Let me just read these as we start our message. Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a thinking message. So if you didn't bring your thinking caps, borrow one. Um, And so this may be a little cerebral, but stick with me. We'll get more practical as we go. I'm just giving you that heads up so you don't don't tune me out. But what's interesting about verse 23 is how Matthew ends In a parenthesis. Do you see that? Is that still up there? See the parenthesis? Which means God with us. You see, Matthew is inviting every one of us into the reality of the birth of Jesus by translating a Hebrew word for a non-Jewish audience and tells us that the word Emmanuel means God with us. And by doing that, he invites everyone from everywhere into the reality of the birth of Jesus. 
And Matthew certainly has an opinion on what goes into the blank. It's the word with. God with us. Just think about that sentence for just a minute. That's a mind-blowing sentence. God with us. If that is true, then it has massive implications for the way you and I live, the way you and I relate to God, the way you and I experience life in this world. God with us truly does have the potential to change our lives, doesn't it? And even transform our world. God with us. Well, that's what Matthew is going to talk about in this first story that he captures in the end of Matthew chapter 1. And as Matthew unpacks this story, what we'll learn is that in Jesus, God comes to be with us. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. That simple truth does have the potential to change everything. It can change our lives. It can change the lives of our families, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, this world. If we truly embrace that in Jesus, God came to be with us. There are two signs that Matthew wants us to truly understand. That Jesus is this one, Emmanuel, God with us. And as he pulls this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah... He wants us to see two signs that prove that Jesus is indeed the one that was promised to come. And the first of those two signs is the virgin conception. The first is the virgin conception. Let me just look at the first clause of the prophecy, the first part of verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. So this verse, as I said, comes from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived during a difficult time in Israel's history. He lived during a time when the kingdom had been split between the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. He prophesied and he ministered during the time just before the Babylonians came in and destroyed the southern kingdom and carried all the people off to captivity. And God did that because of the sins of his people. And God judged the sin, destroyed the nation, scattered them, to the ends of the earth, exiled them from the land. And Isaiah, during this time, prophesied not only against the sin of the people, but he gave many illusions or prophecies or promises about a one who is coming who would change the world. That one would come who would fulfill all of the promises in the Old Testament, this one who would come, who would rule and reign forever. Many of the promises of Isaiah are found to be true in Jesus Christ. And Matthew begins with one of them here. And so the first part of this prophecy gives us a clear sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. I want you to skip up to verse number 18 to pick up where the story begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Matthew, in this story, 
takes great pain to demonstrate that Mary was a virgin. Because that's vitally important to the prophecy and to our understanding of who Jesus is. And so in verse 18, Matthew tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph and that this story takes place before they had come together. And so in order to understand that, you have to understand ancient Jewish wedding practices. It starts three phases. It starts phase number one, when two parents get together and say, I'd like my child to marry your child. Sometimes that happens when the kids are born or when they're, when they're just little kids. Some, by the way, this still happens in the East in some countries. So it's a shock to some of you, but as my children get older, I wonder if it's not a bad idea. Um, <clears throat> kind of get, anyway. Um, the dads make a deal. I'd like to have our children get married. So this is the engagement. This is when the ch- children are pledged to be together when they grow up. And so as they grow up, they enter the second stage. If they don't decide to exit the marriage, they go into second stage, the betrothal. The betrothal is a legally binding arrangement where the two that have been engaged and promised to one another or pledged to one another now legally bind themselves to get married. This usually lasts for about a year, but they don't live together. They don't have any relationships, physical or otherwise, with one another. Usually it's this one-year period where the man goes off and builds a home for the couple when they do get married. So this is the betrothal period. And if all goes well, they get married. If, if one of them decides to call off this marriage, you have to actually give a, di- a bill of divorce because this is legally binding. The only way to exit the wedding is to give a divorce. If that doesn't happen, the third step is is the marriage, where they come together, they pledge themselves together, they live together, and they can consummate the the marriage, right? That that three steps. This story takes place in step number two. They're, They're betrothed. They are legally bound together, but they don't live together. They don't have any sexual relationship with one another. They're waiting for the one year period to come where they can get married. And so, in this second stage, Mary is found to be with child. Now, we know Mary knows what's going on because in Luke chapter 2, an angel comes and tells Mary, Hey, Mary, you're going to have a child conceived in your womb by the Holy Spirit, so don't worry about it. God's going to put this child in you. Mary knows what's going on. But when you look at Joseph, Joseph doesn't have a clue. He's not the typical guy. Don't, Don't get the guy jokes going. But no one's told him. He's in the betrothal period. He looks at Mary. Mary is showing, what's going on, Mary? You know, they didn't have the medical advances that we have today. But even they knew it takes two to tangle. You know what I mean? It'll sink in for you in a minute. And as far as Joseph is concerned, if Mary is pregnant, it wasn't him. He didn't have anything to do with it. And so logically, naturally speaking, what must have happened? Mary must have cheated. She has been unfaithful. But see, Joseph was a just man, which means he was righteous. He loved God, but he also loved Mary. This woman that he was pledged to marry, he loved. But if he married her, it would send a message to the rest of the culture that it was his fault. He'd want that. 
So he decided to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly, so that it wouldn't bring her public shame. He loved her that much. But as he's thinking about doing that, God sends an angel into his dream, and the angel tells him, don't divorce your Mary, but take her as your wife because the child that's in her womb has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. You see, twice already we've been told that Mary is a virgin. But he's not done. Actually, if you skip down to verse number 25, we're told once again that Mary is a virgin. That when Joseph woke up from the dream, he took Mary to be his bride. They were married, but she and he did not consummate their wedding until after Jesus was born. Three times in this story, Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that Mary was a virgin. She was a virgin. And that the child that's in her womb has been put there by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is certainly going out of his way to prove to us and to demonstrate for us that Mary was a virgin. Why? Because he's connecting this event back to a prophecy that was made 700 years ago in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 7, I can't read it for you, you can go home and read it, but the story, if I could just summarize it in a nutshell... Judah has a king named Ahaz. King Ahaz is the king over the kingdom of Judah. But he has a problem. Two northern kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, are ticked off with him because he won't join their war effort against the king of Assyria. And so these two kings of the north are deciding they're going to take him out. And so they're making plans to come. And so as Ahaz is figuring out what to do, God sends Isaiah with a promise to tell King Ahaz, don't worry about these two northern kingdoms. I'm going to take care of them for you. And in order to help prove that God was going to take care of them, God through Isaiah tells King Ahaz, demand God for a sign. King Ahaz says, I won't do that. I'm not going to demand God a sign. It's not because he was righteous. In fact, he wasn't. He was a wicked king. The reason he didn't want to demonstrate or demonstration from God is he already had made plans to send money and gold up around the kingdoms to the Assyrian king to come down and take care of the two northern kings himself. So he already had plans. He didn't need God in his equation. And so he says, I don't want a sign. And Isaiah rebukes him and says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign he gives them is this prophecy. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. Wait a minute. How does that work? What does the word virgin mean in that context? It, does that mean that there's more than one virgin birth? What's the answer, church? No. There's not more than one vir, uh, virgin birth. It's the only virgin birth that has ever occurred is Matthew chapter 1. It's the birth of Jesus. So then what's going on? How did God give Ahaz a promise about a virgin birth that's going to be fulfilled because it was supposed to be a sign to Ahaz, not to us? And so people have done all sorts of mental gymnastics trying to explain the prophecy away. They say, for example, the word virgin just means in the original Hebrew language, a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't have to mean virgin. Well, there's a problem with that. It's, it sounds good. Mental gymnastics work with that. 
But the data doesn't prove it. Here's why. Nine times that word is used in the Old Testament. And except for one or two cases, every other time, it is clear that the context is talking about a young virgin woman. It's also interesting to note that in the 3rd century B.C., when 70 Jewish scholars got together to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to this word, they could have chosen a dozen other Greek words for it, but the word they chose meant virgin. Isn't it interesting that God supernaturally helped them translate that word as virgin? They understood it as a virgin giving birth to a child. And so how do we explain what happens in Isaiah chapter 7. Because the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 is a sign for Ahaz, specifically. You see, in Isaiah chapter 8, one chapter later, you find Isaiah going in to the prophetess, and they have a child. And they name that child a really ridiculous long name. In fact, it's the longest name in the Bible. You can go look it up. I'm not even going to pronounce it. That child, the promise says that before that child knows how to say mommy or daddy, God would destroy the two kings of the north. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 8. Before the child is weaned, God destroys the two northern kingdoms and saves his people Judah once again. But that child that's born in Isaiah chapter 8 doesn't fulfill all of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. So what is it, what is it saying? You see, in prophecy, there is a local fulfillment, a near-term fulfillment, and there's a second fulfillment, a complete fulfillment, an ultimate fulfillment. 700 years after Isaiah promised that, Jesus was born in complete fulfillment of what Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. A virgin shall conceive, and he, she shall bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so you don't have to do mental gymnastics to understand exactly how Jesus was born. He was born, conceived in the womb of Mary as a virgin, and she gave birth to him. But maybe we're making too big of a deal. What's the big deal about a virgin birth? Do we have to, as Christians, hold to the virgin birth? Is it important? You're saying yes. That's the right answer. <clears throat> but there are several Christians, scholars, who are saying, eh, you know, virgin birth was created by Christians after the birth of Jesus to make Jesus miraculous and, and all this other stuff, so you don't really need to hold it. It's just man-made. They couldn't be more wrong. You see, the virgin birth is vital to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I don't have time to go through all of this, but let me just give you two quick reasons why the virgin birth is vitally important. The first is that Jesus, when he was born of a virgin, meant that he came into this world just like you and me. Exactly like you and me, except for one thing. He was not a sinner. You see, you and I, when we came into this world, we had a mom and a dad. And when we were born, we had an inheritance given to us at birth. You know what that inheritance was? A sin nature. A sin nature that's been passed down generation after generation that started all the way back from our first parent, Adam. Every child born since Adam has been born with a sin nature, except Jesus. You see, Jesus bypassed the normal, natural pregnancy process. 
And God conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary directly. You realize Jesus has 23 chromosomes that come from Mary and 23 that don't come from Joseph. God sidestepped the natural process so that when Jesus was born, he was born just like you and me, yet without sin. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. (laughs) That's why the virgin birth is important. Second reason, quickly, is that the virgin birth is what allows full deity to be united with full humanity. Now, could God have sent Jesus into the world as a fully grown 30-year-old? He could have. But then we would have had reason to doubt his humanity, wouldn't we? God could have sent Jesus into the world, born through regular parents, the normal way, and at some point in his life, God could have infused deity into the body of Jesus. But if he had done that, we would have questioned whether Jesus was divine. In order to remove all question, God in his infinite wisdom sent Jesus into the womb of Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit to remove all doubt because Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. God wrapped himself in human flesh. Friends, just two reasons. You can go Google the rest. But the virgin birth is vitally important for how we believe who Jesus is, and what he came to do. Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he fulfills the first sign that Matthew talks about in Isaiah chapter 7. That's just the first sign. And Matthew goes through great length to demonstrate the virginity of Mary, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin, and she gave birth to a son. In fact, that's the second sign, the birth of a son, In fact, that's the second clause in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Let's pick up the story again in verse number 21. She will bear a son, that is the virgin, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The second half of Isaiah's prophecy is that there would not only be a virgin conception, but there would be the birth of a son, not any son, but a specific son, a promised son. And the promise is found in his name because they are told to give him a specific name. It's the name Jesus. You see, the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua has two parts. Ye, the first part, is the shortened form of Jehovah or God. And Shua means to save. So when you put those two together, Yeshua means to save. Jesus means God saves. 
And so one look at his name tells us everything about who he is and what he came to do. One look at his name tells us his identity and his mission. He is God and he has come to save his people from their sins. That's Jesus. Jesus is the son who is promised. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. And he came to satisfy the greatest need that every one of us has. What is our greatest need? You know, if our greatest need had been education, God would have sent us a teacher, wouldn't he? If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us a banker or a financial advisor. If our greatest need had been advice, God would have sent us a counselor. But our greatest need was forgiveness, which is why God sent us a savior. And that is why his name is Jesus, because he saves his people from their sins. Amen? Jesus saves his people from our sins. And you notice in verse number 25, the angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus. And he gets up in the morning, he marries Joseph, and when Jesus is born, he names him Jesus. It kind of seems like a throwaway line, but it's not. There's no throwaway line in the Bible. God is parsimonious. That word means that God doesn't use a lot of words to explain himself. He uses the bare minimum. And so if it's in the Bible, there's a reason. Joseph named him Jesus. Why is that important? Because remember, Jesus is not Joseph's son. Remember that? Joseph is not the biological father. But by naming this son Jesus, Joseph is adopting Jesus into his family. Because that is what a father does. And so Joseph, by exercising his right of adoption, names this child Jesus, adopting him him into Joseph's family. And why is that important? If you look back up in verse number 20, when the angel shows up in Joseph's dream, do you remember how the angel addresses Joseph? The angel says, Joseph, son of David. You see, the first 17 verses of this chapter 1, if Matthew, is filled with a bunch of names that most of us can't pronounce. And -and so-and-so had so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so had so-and-so. And And if you're from the King James Version, it's a lot of begats. And a lot of people are begatting a lot of other people. And 17 verses of them, and we skip over them. But here's the point of why God has placed all 17 of those verses in in the first chapter of Matthew. Because it shows the royal heritage of Joseph. Joseph is the legal heir of the throne of David. And back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David. You know what it was? I will establish the throne of David forever. So Jesus not only fulfills Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, he also fulfills the promise made to David a thousand plus years before to David. And here comes Jesus, legally now, a part of Joseph's family, heir to the throne of David. Isn't that awesome? How God brings all of this to a close in and through the person of his son, Jesus. Not only is he virgin born, he is the promised Messiah, the promised one, the promised son who is to come. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. Friends, he is not the faraway God. He's not the close by God. He's not in the same zip code God. He is the with us God. And if you can truly capture that sentence, God 
with us will change your life. <clears throat> in my house, I have a paver patio. And built into the paver patio is a fire pit. It came with the house, so it's pretty old. A couple of years ago, I noticed that we've got a new resident in the fire pit. It's a furry little chipmunk. I have tried and tried to chase the chipmunk out of the fire pit, and I have yet to be successful. I chase him out, and he runs and scurries over to the other lawn, and he just waits there for me to chase him. He just sits there and stares at me and dares me to chase him some more. Eventually, I give up. I go back in the house, and when he thinks it's safe, he comes right back to the fire pit. The fire pit has become his home. And so I leave him alone, and he leaves me alone. We're cordial with one another. That's what good neighbors do, right? <clears throat> and I watch him from my window, and I watch him get up whenever he wants. He scurries around, does whatever he wants. He seems to have no cares in the world. He is absolutely free with no worry at all. Who doesn't want a life with no worry? Amen? But here's, what the, here's a surprising thing. This will surprise you. I know it will. I have never once prayed, Lord, make me a chipmunk. God, give me nice furry skin and sharp claws and beady little eyes because I want to be a chipmunk. I have never prayed that prayer. You know why? Do you know what they eat? Dirty, nasty nuts and insects and worms. You know what I want to eat? I want to go to Red Robin. <laughs> I want to go to Five Guys. I want to have a piece of steak. Chipmunks don't care. You know where chipmunks live? Well, this one lives in my fire pit. But most of them, they bur burrow a hole in the ground and they live in the ground. I'm not going to give up my home to go live in the ground somewhere. I can't encourage this little chipmunk to go even investigate a couple of neighbors down. You know, as far as a chipmunk is concerned, their entire world is about a thousand square yards. I've tried to coax this little critter to go and explore the world. He doesn't care what's in the world. As far as he's concerned, he's absolutely content with where he is. Me, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to eat good food. I want to have relationships. I don't want to be a chipmunk. Now, ask yourself this question. What would it take for me to be a chipmunk? What would I have to give up to be a chipmunk? As soon as you come up with an answer, multiply it by a trillion, and you'll get a fraction of what it took for the Lord Jesus Christ to leave heaven and come to earth. He did that so that he could be God with us. Friends, he did not stay in heaven and tell us to do more and try harder. Love found a form. 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, love came down, wrapped himself in flesh so that he could demonstrate to us, to teach us, to show us what love really looks like. And it took the form of a baby through a virgin named Mary. He came into this world to demonstrate for you and for me that he truly loves us. He didn't just say he loved us. He showed it to us, didn't he? Because two, a couple of years later, he would die on a cross. Because he's the only one who came into the world to die on a cross to save you and me from sin. Friends, do you know the God with us? You know that God is with us through the thick and thin. 
that no matter what we're going through, He is God with us. When we're going through suffering and sickness, He is God with us. When we're going through the ups and downs of life, He is God with us. When things are going well, He is God with us. When things are not going well, He is still God, help me church, with us. When we're struggling, He is God with us. When we're having a great day, He is still God with us. No matter what happens in our life, no matter what happens in this world, He is still God with us. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, may I introduce Him to you? He came to demonstrate His love for you. He ultimately died on a cross to shed His blood, to pay the penalty that you and I could never pay so that we might be forgiven our sins and that we could be made right with God. And it starts by believing that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is Jesus who came to save us from our sins. If you would confess him, if you would say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins, and you would say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive me and save me from my sins and be the Lord and Savior of my life. If you would say that to Jesus today, he would come into your life and he would change your life forever. And he would change your world forever too because you will no longer be the same. You'd be adopted into a whole new family, given a peace that you cannot explain, a joy that keeps coming up out of your soul that can only be explained because of what Jesus did on the cross. If you're here today and you want to know Jesus, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be at the front. I'd love to introduce Jesus to you. Church, for those of you who know and love Jesus, in the hustle and bustle of this Christmas season, never forget, he is God with us. Let that truth sink in, deep into our soul, that no matter what this Christmas season might bring, he is with us. Amen? Father God, I thank you. Thank you that you didn't stay in heaven telling us what to do. You came. You came into this world, took on the form of flesh, you look just like us, and yet you did it without sin. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying on a cross for us. Thank you for doing in us what we could never do. Thank you for being God with us. May that truth resonate in our heart, ring in our heart, solidify in our heart, so that no matter what life throws at us, no matter what this world may do to us, no matter what tomorrow might bring, may we never forget that you are standing with us, that you are with us through the thick and the thin of life. And may that continue to encourage us, embolden us to face each and every day with you. Thank you for that truth. And we'll thank you for all that you have done and all that you're going to do. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.